Section 5 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 26. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 26. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 5. A Tale of Boston in Olden Time But who art thou, with the shadowy locks o'er thy pale young brow, And the world of dreamy gloom that flies in the misty depth of thy soft dark eyes? Thou hast loved, fair girl, thou hast loved too well, Thou art mourning now o'er a broken spell. Thou hast poured thy heart's rich treasures forth, And art unrepaid for thy priceless worth. Hemon In a retired avenue, in the rear of Washington Street, And near the ever-to-be-remembered Old South, Stands a venerable pile, Surmounted by the uncouth figure Of a grim son of the forest, Yet known as the Province House. This building was once the gay headquarters of the commander-in-chief of England's colonial troops. Yes, that antique relic of a departed age, where now the busy and important sit resorts to enjoy his Havana, and recruit his temporal man with life's luxuries. Was in olden time the proud court of a king's military ambassador. Some six months after the incidents preceding were seated round a table in this mansion a few gay young officers of the English army. Mirth and hilarity seemed to reign triumphant. Among the number not the least conspicuous sat Lord Arthur B. And if the human-faced divine be an index of the heart, he would have been pronounced the happiest one of the group. My lord of B., said young Colonel G., a conceited and good-humoured officer. What a lucky dog are yon! And then the mortification and envy you have caused a score of others by your good fortune. Pon honour, I was just on the point of attempting an assault upon her myself, a lovely wife. And what is better, a plum by the way of settlement on your marriage, a fine prospect for a king's officer, in the cursed Yankee land, I wish to heaven there was another wealthy and beautiful loyal nymph hereabouts. I would make her happy, as I live, for we have nothing else to lay siege to at present. A roar of merriment followed the colonel's confident speech. My gallant colonel, said a more grave major, I fear you will never succeed in your feminine sieges. You'll always get the lucre foremost in the articles of war. Believe me, you will never gain a damsel's heart by counting her daddy's breeches pocket. Don't be too hard, my good major. My mind wanders to that which is most needed. These Yankee sharpers can drain British purses, even though they excel in nothing else. But let us drop this and drink to the fair Miss L and our Lord Arthur, not forgetting the approaching festivity, which, thank heaven, will be one bright spot in our career. 
We leave this merry company and return to the quarters of Lord B. Seated on a couch in his apartment is the youthful messenger Eugene. But how changed since the eventful night of his arrival? A few months of deep, corroding anguish had wrought a fearful contrast in his form. The jetty and short curling hair is thrown aside, and from the fair brow flow luxuriant locks of beautiful auburn. The flashing, tearful eyes, the flushing cheeks, the firmly closed lips, and heaving bosom reveal to the reader the ardent, devoted Lady Julia. Near at hand stands, regarding her with respectful look, the valet Ralph, after a long and agonizing indulgence in her woe. The lady raised her head and spoke. For this painful confirmation of my suspicions, I thank thee, my kind Ralph, now that his falsehood is truly unmasked, now that I feel he has filled my cup of bitterness to the brim, I will witness with my own eyes these blasting events to my own young hopes. Oh, Ralph, what have I not sacrificed for this man, this base-hearted monster? Have I not suffered exile from my native land, and passed even the bounds of my sex to behold his smile? to breathe the same air that is charmed by his presence? Have I not sacrificed home, friends, comfort, perhaps my own proud name, for this false wretch? True, madam, but cannot your feigned report of loss and fortune, and your great distance, the long period since his leaving England, be some atonement for his master's untruth? No, Ralph, this will not atone for wrongs like mine. It was but a foolish, romantic whim of mine to witness its effect on him. For this I bore to him my own letters, and, oh, the love and devotion he showed on my thirsty spirit on that night of our meeting. Little knew he who listened and feasted on his every word. Had she fond delusion of that night existed unbroken for one short week, how gladly would I have thrown off all disguise and surrendered myself my fortune, and my whole soul to him, but to be thus cast off, slighted and forgotten, shall the last of my proud and ancient line be thrown aside by him who once thought, lived, and breathed, but in my presence, and all this for an acquaintance of an hour? No, Ralph, I have fed upon his bounty like a dog, and of late his very brute has had more smiles and looks than the neglected and despised Eugene. But I have passed the bounds of maiden honor, from shame, and an insulted spirit there is no retreat. There yet remains revenge, revenge such as women's wrongs and women's hearts can only dream. My kind Ralph, you have been faithful to me. Be silent, get and leave. Another flood of scalding tears burst from her wild and flashing eyes and she bent her aching head upon the couch in silent agony. Bright and joyous was the festival scene on the night destined for the marriage of Lord Arthur B. and the lovely Miss H. Her father's mansion was filled with fair ladies and gay officers of the king, and the bright lamp shone o'er bright women and brave men. Sweet music filled the hall, and proud figures, clad in scarlet and gold, 
blended with those of virgin whiteness, flirted through the mazy figures of the giddy dance. All present appeared joyful and light-hearted save one. In the deep recess of a window stood a pale boy. An unnatural brightness beamed from his dark eyes, yet he seemed not to note the gaiety before him, the gushing melody that floated through the brilliant apartment, and the ringing laugh of youth fell not in gladness on his ear. There was no room for these bright joys than the bursting heart of that lone boy. The hour for the ceremony drew near, but where are the happy beings for whom this festival circle is gathered? In a secluded arbor of a garden sat a youthful couple, conversing in a low and confidential tone. And how many blissful dreams of the future, and what high and happy hopes urged their delusive visions on the mind of that young pair. They are waited for at the altar. The aged father of the young bride approaches Eugene. Tell thy master that the hour is at hand. The boy startled like one awakened from a dream. He looked around with a wild amazement, then answered in a voice of hoarse, unearthly tone. I will. The agony expressed in these brief words rang strangely on the happy group around. The boy had vanished. Suddenly a shriek rang through the mansion that blanched the blood from many a lovely cheek. All rushed to the arbor. The young nobleman lay stretched upon the earth. The life's blood gushed from his heart, tingling with yet deeper shade his crimson attire. Sinking by his side was the slight figure of the youth, his open garments revealing the white bosom of a female, with the gun-drawn dagger yet flashed within its faintly throbbing heart. With the last exertion of fleeting life, she exclaimed, This is my revenge. This is the fearful price of a blighted name, or woman's wrongs. The bodies of these victims of broken truth were borne to their far distant land. The fair Emma H. has long since been laid in the family vault of ancient cops. All has since changed, save certainly that mankind are prone to falsehood, and that vows, like bubbles, are easily broken as made. End of Section 5 Read by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida